Our Old Testament reading is from Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9. And you can find that on page 354 in the paper Bibles. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Our sermon text is from John chapter 7, verses 37 to 47. And you can find that on page 580 in the paper Bibles. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When he heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? This is the word of the Lord. Open up to this passage, if you would. It is on page, nope, that's not it. Okay, we got it. It's on page 581. Um, And you're going to want to pay attention to some things. Jesus is making this uh, very famous statement, this very famous invitation. uh, Come to me if you're thirsty. Everyone is thirsty. Come to me and drink. Uh, we've heard this metaphor from him before. Uh, If you've been with us as we've been through John, uh, if you were here when Logan preached on John 4, uh, Jesus makes this uh, kind of same invitation to this uh, woman of Samaria by the well. She's drawing water. Uh, He says, you know, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water, and I would give you living water. Um, which Logan pointed out is a double meaning in in addition to having this connotation of giving life, it also has this connotation of just being a a fresh stream that flows, a a river, uh, a rushing river. Um, But he's treating the metaphor a little bit differently in this passage, and so that's going to be some of the things we're going to want to pay attention to. Um, In contrast with with his conversation with the woman in Samaria, uh, in this case, 
the call is universal, it's corporate, uh, it's costly, um, and strangely, uh, it's divisive. All right, you notice he says, uh, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Right, immediately after that, verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, uh, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ come from the offspring of David? Comes from Bethlehem, the village of David, where David was. And so there was a division among the people over him. Some people even wanted to arrest him. And if you were uh, following, if you were to read all of chapter 7, you would see Jesus is actually aware uh, that people are trying to arrest him. Um, he was... He expressed some reluctance to come to Jerusalem for this festival. Um, uh, he comes, he doesn't come openly. At first he comes only in secret. He doesn't want anyone to know that he's there. He has said earlier that the reason is because his time has not yet come, which we know throughout the book of John is this reference that he's making to the time when he knows he's going to be crucified. It's not time for him to be crucified yet, so he's coming in secret. He knows they're trying to arrest him. So at some point in this... Uh, on this day, this last day of the feast, he makes this decision to make this really public, loud announcement, uh, despite the risk and despite his desire not to be arrested yet. So why is that? And what's the, why does it cause a division among these people? In fact, the Greek word there is schism. It's a really sharp, it's not just, oh, they, they, they disagreed. It's not an argument among them. It's, a, it's, it's two factions get formed. It's like a, a uh, an earthquake happens and separates the land and there's people on either side and they are separated from each other. Jesus' uh, invitation, and like, how does an invitation, hey, if you would like some water, I will give you some. I have a river. You can have some water from me. How does that uh, create that kind of a divide among people? What is going on with what he's talking about? Um, you know, when it says that some people thought he was the prophet and others thought he was the Christ, and Christ, Christ and Messiah, interchangeable, one is Greek, one is Hebrew, they mean exactly the same thing. Uh, the prophet and the Christ. The prophet is from uh, Deuteronomy 18, uh, where it says that they would, uh, God would send, sometime in the future, a prophet who would be like Moses. Um, like Moses is a big deal. Moses, it says in Numbers 18, that a prophet like Moses, Numbers, it says that, that he would have to see God face to face. Moses is the mediator of the covenant that forms the people of God at, at Mount Sinai. He's the one who brings the Ten Commandments down. That's a huge thing. How could you, you know, what would a prophet who looked like Moses be? Well, Jewish people at this time understood that when that happened, that would be a big deal in their history. That it might be shaking them to the very foundation, might be changing everything. Um, some people understood that, it, that the Christ, that the Messiah and the prophet were the same people. Maybe not everybody agreed about that, but, they, but people saying, maybe this is the prophet, maybe this is the Christ. It's a huge deal. But that's not actually the thing, that, so that's not the thing that's actually divided, and that's actually more a point of, of unity among them. The thing that actually divides them is, is, is he this guy? 
is he the prophet? Is he the Christ? And there's people on one side going, yes, he has to be. No one's ever talked like this. No one's ever done the things that he does. If the, when the Messiah does come, I think it says later, when the Messiah does come, is, he, is it possible that he could do greater works and say greater things than this person has said? If this isn't the Messiah, how could it possibly be that someone else is? What could it possibly look like? Uh, but on the other side, there's people going, yeah, but he's, he, this guy's from Galilee, uh, supposed to be the son of David, supposed to be from Bethlehem. And it's kind of one of the areas where John is, uh, you know, John writes his gospel, um, you know, several decades after Mark wrote his gospel and after the other gospels were written, uh, after Matthew and Luke, which make it clear that Jesus was from the house of David and was born in Bethlehem. Um, it seems like not everybody knows that right here, and John isn't even commenting on it. He's just kind of bringing this up to kind of like uh, raise the irony with us that people aren't even aware that the, that the reason that people are rejecting him here is for a reason that's not even valid. He actually is from the house of David. He actually is uh, from, uh, born in the city of Bethlehem. But the proclamation of Christ divides these people into these two factions. And, it's, and again, it is a hard word. It's not a mere disagreement, but it is a, it is a division. More, most importantly, something here about what Jesus has said is fundamentally and deeply divisive of people. Now, why is that? Why is offering people a drink of water? Why is offering people a drink of fresh water uh, able to spark a deep schism between people and create two factions like this. Why is that? Well, it has to do with John's explanation. All right, the narrator says in verse 39, now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Water uh, and drinking are really about the Holy Spirit. And the people who are listening to him, they understand this. Uh, John is commenting on it so to make sure that we as the reader understand what the people who heard him understood. Now, why did they understand that? How did they know that that's what he was talking about? I will tell you. They know from the Old Testament that over and over again, water is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit, for salvation, and for all of the things associated with the coming of the Messiah. Uh, living water, fresh water, water that gives life is over and over again in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, a repeated metaphor that these people were familiar with. And so in the context of this festival, which I'll tell you a little more about soon, it's called the Feast of Booths. Uh, in the context of this festival, somebody standing up and talking about... Uh, Giving water, living water, raises all of these passages to their mind. It raises to their minds Isaiah 12.3, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Ezekiel 47, verse 1. He says, Then he brought, back to me the door of, he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water, <coughs> water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south to the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Now, 
Take a look at Ezekiel 47 sometime in its context. It's not talking about the temple that existed in Jerusalem that they are looking at right now. It is talking, it's predicting that, a, that this, was, this was the second temple. Was, they, would, they built a temple once. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. They built another temple when they returned to the land. And Ezekiel in Ezekiel 47 is prophesying that there's going to be a third temple. A third one. And it's from that third temple that this river is flowing out from under the altar. And in John and in the other Gospels, Jesus is frequently alluded to as being himself that third temple. Being that that third place where the location of God's presence on earth will be. The place where God will be properly worshipped. So to say that the river is flowing from me. In the context of this festival, Jesus is is saying that he is that temple. How could anyone but the Messiah, how could anyone but the prophet make a claim like that? Like either he is or he is a, a, a deceiver of the worst sort. Everyone listening knows these passages and they know many more. So they know that Jesus is, uh, they know what Jesus is offering when he says this. They know what he's claiming to be. Okay. He's claiming to be the source that the Spirit of God will flow through to his people. And you've got to consider here exactly what Christianity claims to offer. If you're not a Christian, let me tell you. There's a lot of things that are true about Christianity, but right near its core uh, is the claim that in Christianity, that through Jesus Christ, we have access to God's own self to be within us. Now, I had to very quickly, you know, say that this is not talking about the the divine spirit that sort of Oprah or Deepak Chopra would talk about, where... Uh, you know, you know, everybody has this divine spark and you just need to think positive and work hard and everything will always work out in your favor because you have the divine spark within you. It's very clearly not that. The spirit of God is not a, like, the, you know, in that context you would say it, that divine spark, it is within you. This is talking about a person, a he, a him. That force that Oprah or, or Deepak would talk about, that force is, uh, is impersonal. It's, uh, it's an energy. And, and I'm, not, I, I, I'm not trying to hand wave and, and dismiss them. I think that there may be something to what they're saying in the experience of people. Uh, we are created in the image of God, and all human beings do have that spark within them, in a sense. But what Jesus is saying here is that the person of God will take up residence within you. That through me, Jesus is saying, Actually, the Spirit of God will dwell in you. They're talking about a power or energy, not a person. An energy, a a force, a spark like that, it won't speak to you. It won't comfort you. It cannot change you. It can only help you be more of what you are. But the Holy Spirit is really God himself. He is from outside of you. He is other than you. He is not you. 
And Jesus is saying that he will give him to you. He, the Holy Spirit, is radically free. He is holy and demanding. And because he is an other person than you, and because he will not just accept your status quo, because he will interact with you, then he's able to speak to you. He's able to comfort you. He's able to teach you. He's able to change you. He's able to transform you. He's able to help you grow and change and to truly empower you. The Christian faith, really Jesus himself, is saying that God himself will live within you. The brilliant mind that designed and upholds the universe wants to dwell in your mind. The icy, demanding personhood of justice wants to take up residence in your soul. The consuming fire of love himself wants to live in your heart. Not make your love bigger, but the person of love come into you. No wonder this divided people. This is a shocking claim that he's making. Jesus is saying that if anyone wants that, he and only he alone is the one you should come to. Only he has that river flowing out of him like a rushing sound. No wonder it creates a schism among people. So at this point, let me, let me talk to you about this festival and what this image of living water uh, calls immediately to mind for these people, okay? Verse 2, you look up there, it says that it's the Feast of Booths. This is um, talked about in Leviticus chapter 23. It's one of the feasts that God commands his people to, uh, to, to practice throughout all generations. And the command was, look, when you came out of Egypt, you dwelled in the wilderness for some 40 years, you lived in tents, and I took care of you. I provided everything that you needed. It says in Nehemiah 9, talking about this, it says that their shoes didn't wear out, that their clothing didn't wear out, that their feet didn't swell up, uh, that God was with them and took radically, and he provided, you remember from chapter 6, Jesus talking about being the bread that comes down from heaven, talking about your, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. It's talking about this time, that in this time where God's people were wandering around in the wilderness, he was giving bread out of the sky every day for them to just gather up and eat. And Jesus says back then, I'm actually the bread that comes down to heaven for the whole world. That bread came down for just your ancestors, and they ate it, and you know what? They died later. But I'm the bread that is for the life, the eternal life of the entire world. By saying that in chapter 6, Jesus is implying that the whole world is in this, metaphorically speaking, this state of wandering. All of us are wandering and hungry the way that those people were literally wandering and hungry and dependent on God for the bread that they would eat the next day. All of us are in that condition. And here Jesus continues to press that by talking about the water, okay, that he is the water that God gave them. He was just like the water that God gave them when they were wandering in the wilderness. And this Feast of Booths was commanded to them, look, once a year, for seven days, a particular date, one whole week, you're going to make some tents out of uh, branches from 
these fruit trees from palm trees and other trees, and you're going to lean them together, you're going to make little lean-tos, and you're going to live in there for a week so that you don't forget what it was like. So that your children and their children's children and your children's 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 children for generations to come will not forget how I took care of you, how I'm the reason that you survived out there, how you are still, even now that you're in the land and even now that you have farms and your own army and you're, you have to make your own shoes and you have to make clothing, I am still the source of your life. Do this every year, year after year, so that you will not forget. And that's what this festival is. Now, other rituals kind of accreted to this within the temple. Specifically, daily, and this is where it gets cool, okay? Daily, throughout uh, that festival, every day, the priests would go to the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, they would draw water, and they would carry it in this majestic procession into the temple, and they would pour it as a, an offering on the altar. They would pour uh, water, and they would pour wine into respective cups. Now, also part of how it gets interesting here is that this is not commanded in Scripture. God didn't tell them to do this. They just kind of came up with it. And also, something that, that kind of glommed onto this festival was this prayer uh, and petition for rain for the coming year. Now, if you're familiar with the way um, pagan religions work, this might sound familiar. Um, in pagan religions, um, I'm talking about ancient Near Eastern paganism, I'm talking about like Wicca or uh, you know, English, that kind of thing. I'm talking about the ancient Near Eastern paganism. The way that it worked was you made offerings to the gods to appease them and get their attention so that they would bless your crops and give you rain. You wanted this, you wanted that, you wanted the other thing, you appeased the gods so that the gods would give it to you. And the frightening thing is that the children of Israel have, have imported this sort of attitude toward God. That this festival that's supposed to simply be about reminding them of, this, of the way that he cares for them have made it about what they're going to do for him by pouring out their offerings so that he will bless their crops and give them rain. And Jesus is watching this through this week, day after day, afternoon after afternoon, as they go through this ritual, do their little dance to try to get God's attention so that he'll bless them. And it's like he can't stand it anymore. And despite the danger, despite the fact that he knows there are people trying to arrest him, it's like he stands up and he's like, you, with the water, if you are thirsty, come to me. I'm the one that this is about. What are you doing with your rituals and your paganism? Stop it. If you want life, come to me. I have a river of living water that's going to flow through me into you so full that it's going to burst out of you. And it's like it explodes out of him. I, lo I love how human Jesus is in John. You know, he's not that guy with the, the eyes and the hair, you know? Like, this guy is just bursting with passion. 
All of humanity is wandering in the wilderness and thirsty, and I'm the source of life for all of you. I've got it. I have the Holy Spirit for you. If you, would, if you are thirsty, come to me. And if you believe in me, drink. That's it. I mean, you do this. You do this all the time, don't you? I mean, you may not even believe in God. But when you, uh, some, you want to change something in your life, don't you start making little sacrifices? Oh, I'll give up smoking so that, you know, or uh, you start starting a new relationship. Oh, this is the time. I'll give up pornography now so that my relationship will be good. You know, didn't bother you last week. You know, you, what's happening? Why are you doing those things? Why is it that you're going to get responsible with your money uh, when you have a big investment that you're making? Why is it that you start trying to get responsible with your time when you have a job interview coming up? You're trying, to, you're trying to manipulate the universe, even if you don't believe in God. And if you do believe in God, you're trying to manipulate God. And he's not going to be manipulated. He's saying, just come to me and believe and drink. And it's all yours. The Holy Spirit himself. This invitation is for absolutely everyone who can hear him. If you are thirsty, if you are thirsty, I'm the one you should come to. The only requirement is that you're thirsty. Know that you are thirsty and that he will really give you what he's offering and come. And that's it. That's all that's the only requirement. You want to know, is the, is the invitation of Jesus for you? Are you one of the ones that Jesus is calling? Are you one of the people for whom Christianity exists? There's only one question to ask. Are you thirsty? And do you know that Jesus has the water? That's it. If you are, come to him. That's it. Life is hard. Come. Life is scary. Come. You've been beaten down. You've been oppressed. You've been robbed. You've been treated unfairly. You've been treated unjustly. Come. You're exhausted from trying to win the universe's favor by making these meaningless offerings. Come. You're tired of your own selfish, frustrated, angry, lying, conniving, pushy, snappy, passive-aggressive, lazy, workaholic self, come to him. But by making that the condition, there is an implication that there is someone that it's not for. Who, if it is for people who are thirsty, who then is the invitation not for? The invitation is not for people who are not thirsty. It's for people who do not believe that he has the water for them that they need. And maybe that should be what scares you. What if you're not thirsty? You know, in one of the other Gospels, Jesus said it's easier for a rich person, sorry, it's easier for a camel to go through right, the eye of a needle 
than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, be clear that when he says enter the kingdom of heaven, he's not just talking about go to heaven when you die. He's talking about participate in it now. That it's easier for a camel to walk through, the, to, to, the easier for a camel to thread a needle with its body than for a rich person to participate in the life-giving kingdom of God. Now, why is that? I mean, what if you look at your life and you say, you know what? Things are pretty good. I've got pretty much everything I've ever wanted. Uh, sure, I mean, maybe I ate a lot of ramen in college, but I got a solid education, and I've got a solid job in a great city in a cool neighborhood. Uh, I have a, a, a good-looking spouse who also has a good job in a great neighborhood. Uh, we have a cool life. Our kids are great. Um, we have enough income and resources that we'll be able to make sure that they have everything they need. Um, we have access to all of the health care we could possibly want if one of us ever gets sick. So we never really suffer at all because there's ibuprofen and there's morphine. <laughs> and any problem that we have, we can solve. I'm, I'm putting money away, and when I'm 65, I'm going to retire, and I'm going to go to Florida, and I'm going to play canasta. I, I don't, does anyone know how to play canasta? I don't even know how to play canasta, but that's what, that, <laughs> see? <laughs> <laughs> And I really have no worries. So I don't really need to think very much about this spirituality stuff. Now, I want to make it very clear that I am not just talking about someone who's not a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are in this danger too. If you are a professing, baptized member of this church, this is a danger for you. This is a danger for me. If this is, if that, if I have just described anything remotely like your experience, I got to point something out to you very strongly, that your experience of life is so far removed from normal human life that if an alien species were writing a history of our species, kind of taken as a whole throughout human history, the way that you live wouldn't even get mentioned. Right? Historically and throughout the world, we are defined as a species of struggle. And if you live a life without struggle, I have to urge you to question your perception of reality. That that state of life, there is an excellent chance, has lulled you and dulled you into a stupor where you are not aware of the things that you really need. I, it is often pointed out by non-religious people that people who are religious tend to be people who have suffering in their life. And so they say religion is a, it's a band-aid. It's a crutch for people who have bad lives. I want to I flip that around. And I want to say that people who have, in, have insanely comfortable lives are removed from human experience that they don't perceive the state of things the way that they actually are. Let me, let me press this metaphor of thirst and water a little bit, 
Okay, let's think about how that functions in your body. Thirst and water. Where do you perceive thirst? In your mouth. When you are perceiving thirst in your mouth, what part of your body actually needs water? Not your mouth. Your bloodstream needs it. Your kidneys need it. Your heart needs it. God knows your brain needs it. Your body needs the water all over. Your mouth is probably the last place that really needs it right away. So your body tells your mouth that it needs water so that you'll drink some for the rest of it. So let's imagine for a moment that instead of drinking water when that happened, you just drink a lot of Coca-Cola. Right? And trick your mouth into thinking that it's getting what, it, that what your body is. Your mouth is getting what it wants, but your body is not getting what it needs. If I have described your state of life, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, I want to challenge you to think of yourself as a person who drinks Coca-Cola because they are thirsty. Your perception of what you need has been skewed by, by what you have. Now, I'm not an ascetic. I'm not trying to tell you to nuke your life and go live in the woods like, like Henry David Thoreau. Uh, you might end up with a whole other kind of spiritual problem if you did that. But I really want to challenge you to consider whether or not you perceive reality correctly, whether or not you perceive your neediness correctly, whether or not you are just comfortable and fat and you've gotten dumb and lazy because of it, metaphorically speaking. Maybe you're that camel. You remember what Jesus said. His disciples heard him say that about the camel. Like, that's impossible. Camels can't go through eyes of needles. And Jesus says, you know, you're right. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Okay, if you are that rich person, look, if you live in this country, even if you're the poorest person in this country, there's a pretty good chance that this describes you. Because of what's available here. We are so far removed here from the way humans usually live that it is impossible for a person in that condition to, to even know that they need Jesus, to even know that they have spiritual needs. I gotta urge you to take that into account. And I will, you know, look. Moral philosophers throughout human history. Think of the ones that you can think of. Who are they? Did any of them come from really comfortable existences? Or are they the really great ones, the ones who really describe our moral condition to us? Christian or not, that's not what I'm saying. Christian or not, Elie Wiesel, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Anne Frank, Gandhi, King, Harriet Tubman. These people, the people who we read and hear and go, they get it. They understand the human soul. They understand morality. They're not they don't come from comfortable existences. 
If you're comfortable like this, you probably don't have moral clarity. You probably don't know your thirstiness. And so that's why I want to urge you to consider that Old Testament reading from this morning, that prayer that Ariel read from Proverbs 30. Two things, he says, two things I have desired of you. Deprive me not before I die. One, remove deceitfulness and lies far from me. And two, feed me with the food that is right for me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I be full and forget you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I want to challenge you to make that your prayer. Uh, even if you don't believe in God, I, I would challenge you to, to start to pray that. Um, I don't think it's an accident that when someone like Zacchaeus, I was reading the story of Zacchaeus to Hada last night. He's the tax collector, really rich from, from defrauding people. When he meets Jesus, the first thing he does is, I'm giving away half of my goods. It's not an accident that that's what happens. It's not an accident. Again, I'm not saying you need to nuke your life. But consider what you may or may not be aware of. That you may not be aware of your thirst. The final thing that Jesus is telling us about this gift of the Holy Spirit, of this water that will save your life, that will reorder you and change you, this person who will take up residence within you and empower you in ways you can't imagine, is the cost. What can make this possible? The hardness of life Fear, oppression, injustice, selfishness, anger, deceit. These are things that can't just be wished away. Not even by God himself. That's not what we mean by omnipotent. When we say that God has all power and can do anything, we don't mean that he can defy logic. Uh, we don't mean that he can design a creature who has free will and doesn't have free will at the same time, right? And it's not possible. We, maybe we don't even know why, but it's not possible for God to obliterate these things just on a whim, just the way that he can move water around and part the Red Sea. It just doesn't seem that he's able to do it. What does it cost? What does Jesus say? Jesus tells us very poignantly here exactly what is necessary and what he is willing to do to heal your wounds and free you from your own sin. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. If you want to turn, it's on page 38. And I'm just going to describe it to you. You can look at it later. It is during this period while they're water wandering through the wilderness and they're thirsty and they're grumbling, Moses, why did you take us out of Egypt? We're going to die in the wilderness. And what God has Moses do is lead the people to a, a particular place where he finds a rock. And, Mo and God tells him, take the staff with which you struck the water of the Nile. Remember, that was an act of judgment. God could have said a lot of things about the staff. He could have said, that staff with which you shepherd my people Israel, or that staff which you turned into a serpent and back again, or that staff with which, which you raised up over the Red Sea and parted it. 
But he says, that staff with which you struck the water in judgment, strike this rock. And that staff of judgment strikes that rock and water that saves the people of God flows out of it. And Jesus is comparing himself to that rock. These people who are commemorating their wandering in the wilderness, I'm the source of the water. I'm the rock that gets struck with judgment. John explains it to us. This water of the Holy Spirit has not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is going to have to be glorified before this water will flow the way he's describing. And remember I said several weeks ago that John seems to expect us to read this book twice, maybe more, before we start to get everything that's going on. Because when he says glorified, Take a look at chapter 17, verse 1. Take a look at uh, chapter 19, verse 34. What John means by glorified is crucified because the glory of God is displayed for us in the laying down of his own life for us. That's the glory of God. The glory of God is that he is willing to be that rock that receives the blow of God's judgment. That Christ himself is going to pour himself out to death. And in John 19, remember, we're still looking ahead, reading it twice. In John 19, 34, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he has died. And they're talking about breaking his legs to make sure that he's dead. And one of the soldiers says, it's not necessary. This guy's dead. I'll prove it to you. And to prove it, he stabs him in the side pulls out the spear, and it says, blood and water flowed out. Now, I've heard, and maybe someone with some medical expertise, I haven't been able to find anything on it, can tell me whether this is true, but I've heard, heard it said that this is because if you're crucified, as you were suffocating, your water, your uh, lungs would fill with fluid. And so when his thorax was pierced, uh, that water flowed out. But the image cannot be lost. That this offering of blood and water, I'm sorry, of wine and water being poured out on the altar is repeated and is fulfilled when Jesus' blood and water flow from his heart. Right? The, the Greek word, when it says, out of, out of his heart will flow a river of living water. The Greek word literally refers to the belly, to the center of the person. It, it can be translated womb. It can be translated stomach. It can, can be translated intestines. It can be translated, it's the, it's the belly. It's the center of the body. It's the middle of the person. And when that spear went into Jesus' side, it pierced his belly. It pierced the center of his being. And out of his belly flows the river of living water for us. The cost is his own life. And he stands up in this assembly of people who are going through this ritual. I'm the source of the life that you need. I'm the source of the water that you need. He is saying that he is going to be pierced so that water can flow from him. That he's a rock that's struck and broke open. It costs him his life to free us from our oppression and our injustice 
and the evil that lives in our own hearts, he can only destroy it by absorbing it into his own being. He can only carry it out of the world by carrying it in himself into death. Evil is too evil for any other solution. Your sin is too sinful for any other solution. You know it. He was pierced, and his blood flowed for your sake. He was destroyed, and you will be made whole. Because he was struck and broken open, the water of life flows for you. Because he gave his life, his body, and his blood are here to nourish you. Let's go to the table.